Chapter Three of Madame de Treme by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Why had it not happened to Fanny Frisbee? Durham put the question to himself as he walked back along the quays, in a state of inner commotion which left him, for once, insensible to the ordered beauty of his surroundings. Propinquity had not been lacking. He had known Miss Frisbee since his college days. In unsophisticated circles one family is apt to quote another, and the Durham ladies had always quoted the Frisbees. The Frisbees were bold, experienced, enterprising. They had what the novelists of the day called dash. The beautiful Fanny was especially dashing. She had the showiest national attributes, tempered only by a native grace of softness, as the beam of her eyes was subdued by the length of their lashes. And yet young Durham, though not unsusceptible to such charms, had remained content to enjoy them from a safe distance of good fellowship. If he had been asked why, he could not have told, but the Durham of forty understood. It was because there were, with minor modifications, many other Fanny Frisbees, whereas never before, within his ken, had there been a Fanny de Malrive. He had felt it in a flash when, the autumn before, he had run across her one evening in the dining-room of the Beau Rivage at Ouchy, when, after a furtive exchange of glances, they had simultaneously arrived at recognition, followed by an eager pressure of hands and a long evening of reminiscence on the starlit terrace. She was the same, but so mysteriously changed, and it was the mystery, the sense of unprobed depths of initiation, which drew him to her as her freshness had never drawn him. He had not hitherto attempted to define the nature of the change. It remained for his sister Nanny to do that, when on his return to the Rue de Rivoli, where the family were still sitting in conclave upon their recent visitor, Miss Durham summed up their groping comments in the phrase, "'I never saw anything so French!' Durham, understanding what his sister's use of the epithet implied, recognized it instantly as the explanation of his own feelings. Yes, it was the finish the modelling, which Madame de Malrive's experience had given her, that set her apart from the fresh, uncomplicated personalities of which she had once been simply the most charming type. The influences that had lowered her voice, regulated her gestures, toned her down to harmony with the warm, dim background of a long social past, these influences had lent to her natural fineness of perception a command of expression adapted to complex conditions. She had moved in surroundings through which one could hardly bounce and bang on the genial American plan without knocking the angles off a number of sacred institutions, and her acquired dexterity of movement seemed to Durham a crowning grace. It was a shock, now that he knew at what cost the dexterity had been acquired, to acknowledge this even to himself. He hated to think that she could owe anything to such conditions as she had been placed in and it gave him a sense of the tremendous strength of the organization into which she had been absorbed, that in spite of her horror, her moral revolt, she had not reacted against its external forms. She might abhor her husband, her marriage, and the world to which it had introduced her, but she had become a product of that world in its outward expression, and no better proof of the fact was needed than her exotic enjoyment of Americanism. The sense of the distance to which her American past had been removed was never more present to him than when, a day or two later, he went with his mother and sisters to return her visit. The region beyond the river existed, for the Durham ladies, 
only as the unmapped environment of the Bon Marché, and Nanny Durham's exclamation on the pokiness of the streets and the dullness of the houses showed Durham, with a start, how far he had already travelled from the family point of view. "'Well, if this is all she got by marrying a Marquis,' the young lady summed up as they paused before the small, sober hotel in its high-walled court, and Katie, following her mother through the stone-vaulted and stone-floored vestibule, murmured, "'It must be simply freezing in winter.' In the softly faded drawing-room, with its old pastels and old frames, its windows looking on the damp green twilight of a garden sunk deep in blackened walls, the American ladies might have been even more conscious of the insufficiency of their friends' compensations, had not the warmth of her welcome precluded all other reflections. It was not till she had gathered them about her in the corner beside the tea-table that Durham identified the slender dark lady loitering negligently in the background, and introduced in a comprehensive murmur to the American group, as the redoubtable sister-in-law to whom he had declared himself ready to throw down his challenge. There was nothing very redoubtable about Madame de Treyme, except perhaps the kindly yet critical observation, which she bestowed on her sister-in-law's visitors, the unblinking attention of a civilized spectator observing an encampment of aborigines. He had heard of her as a beauty, and was surprised to find her, as Nanny afterward put it, a mere stick to hang clothes on but they did hang, with a small brown glancing face, like that of a charming little inquisitive animal. Yet before she had addressed ten words to him, nibbling at the hard English consonants like nuts, he owned the justice of the epithet. She was a beauty, if beauty, instead of being restricted to the cast of the face, is a pervasive attitude informing the hands, the voice, the gestures, the very fall of a flounce and tilt of a feather. In this impalpable aura of grace, Madame de Treyme's dark, meagre presence unmistakably moved, like a thin flame in a wide quiver of light. And as he realized that she looked much handsomer than she was, so while they talked he felt that she understood a great deal more than she betrayed. It was not through the groping speech which formed their apparent medium of communication that she imbibed her information. She found it in the air. She extracted it from Durham's look and manner, she caught it in the turn of her sister-in-law's defenceless eyes, for in her presence Madame de Malrive became Fanny Frisby again. She put it together, in short, out of just such unconsidered, indescribable trifles as differentiated the quiet felicity of her dress from Nanny and Katie's handsome, haphazard clothes. Her actual converse with Durham moved, meanwhile, strictly in the conventional ruts, had he been long in Paris? Which of the new plays did he like best? Was it true that American jeunes filles were sometimes taken to the boulevard theatres? And she threw an interrogative glance at the young ladies beside the tea-table. To Durham's reply that it depended how much French they knew, she shrugged and smiled, replying that his compatriots all spoke French like Parisians, inquiring, after a moment's thought, if they learned it là-bas, des nègres and laughing heartily when Durham's astonishment revealed her blunder. When at length she had taken leave, enveloping the Durham ladies in a last puzzled penetrating look, Madame de Malrive turned to Mrs. Durham with a faintly embarrassed smile. "'My sister-in-law was much interested. I believe you are the first American she has ever known.' "'Good gracious!' ejaculated Nanny, as though such social darkness required immediate missionary action on someone's part. "'Well, she knows us,' said Durham, 
catching in Madame de Malrive's rapid glance a startled assent to his point. "'After all,' reflected the accurate Katie, as though seeking an excuse for Madame de Treim's unenlightenment, "'we don't know many French people, either.' To which Nanny promptly, if obscurely, retorted, "'Ah, but we couldn't, and she could.'" End of chapter 3